I do wanna take a few moments here in case you came in late or you joined us online late just to let you know a few things from this morning. As Caroline mentioned at the beginning, we've had these random power surges and power outages throughout the, the services today. And so if I lose my mic here in a little bit, I'll yell at you. Uh, if you are online, then just hang tight. We'll get you back as soon as we can. Uh, but we also uh, are excited because we did have the nine o'clock service this morning and it went more or less really well. And it was really great to have some folks with us. And, and in particular, uh, one of the things that was our heart and our desire was to have new folks with us. And we did, uh, maybe longtime church members, but church members who haven't had a chance to, to make it out to church yet. And just such a, a blessing to see them. And so that went well. We're going to continue to offer that, and obviously it helps create a little bit more space in here, because that's what we were needing, but it also creates a little bit more of a safer space, I guess you could say, for those that wanna be extra cautious, uh, because we have plenty of room in the nine o'clock, and so just to keep you guys informed that that went well, we're gonna continue to offer it, and if it appeals to you, by all means, let us know, and we can give you more details on that. But um, very excited for what the Lord is doing in our church. Grateful for Nick Pitts, who came and, and spoke and shared with you all last week, if you had a chance to hear from him. Uh, love Nick, good friend of mine, and uh, appreciate him stepping in and speaking on what is a very challenging issue of how do we engage in this cultural environment, in this political environment with a Christ-like mindset and with a biblical worldview. And I think he did that really, really well. I, I did tell the folks at nine o'clock that my only issue with that was that he said to you guys a couple of times that he wasn't fast in his opening illustration. And that's a lie, okay? If you know Nick Pitts, that guy runs all the time and he is anything but slow. And so other than that, he was, he was really, really on point and I'm grateful for him to share with you guys and I hope you hold those truths in your heart over these next few weeks as we navigate this, this political climate and the election season. Uh, so we're gonna continue to, to use Matthew 10 as our guide today. And uh, I was grateful not just for Nick to preach in my absence, but for you all allowing me the opportunity to go out and spend some time with my family, go up to Oklahoma and hang out with my wife's side of the family. We had a great, restful, relaxing, weekend and uh, we, we enjoyed our time there. I, I sadly have to acknowledge that we have yet to figure out that superpower of teleportation that I'm so envious of and would desire. So we still had to go through the just drudgery of packing and unpacking bags, loading and unloading cars, which as I've told you before, is not one of my favorite things to do. So when we got back from our trip, I, I realized that every time I come back from a road trip, I kind of have one of two mindsets when I get back home. Sometimes I get back home and I'm like motivated to get it all done, right? I'm in the zone to unpack, to unload. It's like as soon as we get in, I'm grabbing bags, I'm getting them in the rooms, I'm unpacking the bags, putting it in drawers, putting things in dirty clothes, putting the bags away, done. And I just feel great. It's so awesome. But then there are other times, I don't know how many of y'all like that. There are other times I pull in the driveway and I'm like, mm-mm, later. You know, not now, I don't understand why sitting for four and a half hours wears you out, but it does. So like I go inside, I'm like, I'm gonna get that later. And then I finally find time later in the afternoon or evening and I get the bags in. And in those days, I'm just really good to get the bags in their respective rooms. And that's typically what I do. And that, that kind of can come back and be somewhat of a, I guess a backfire on you because then you find yourself still living out of a suitcase for another day or two. And you wake up the next day and you're in the shower and you're like, oh, where's my soap? Oh, dang it, I haven't unpacked, you know? And you, you kind of enter those moments. And so that's what happened. We, we had gotten bags in rooms and that first night back, James uh, was getting ready for bed and he needed to brush his teeth. So he comes out of the bathroom. He says, dad, where's my toothbrush? Where's my toothpaste? I packed everything up and so I knew exactly where it was. It was in his bag in his room. So I told him, well, it's 
It's in your bag. It's in your room. You can go find it. He leaves for maybe five seconds. Comes back. Dad's not in there. Okay. This began what is a very common experience I believe a lot of parents have with their children as you're trying to teach them what it means to actually search for something. And so I gave him more specifics. And I said, well, no, James, I know it's not in the main part where your clothes are, but it's on that front pouch. Okay, it's in a little plastic baggie in the front pouch of your suitcase. Go try again in the front pouch, right? He leaves for maybe five seconds, comes back, dad, it's not in there, right? So at this point, I know it's happening, right? He might be looking for it. He's not searching for it though at all. And so I tell him, I kind of smile and I'm like, all right, dude, I'll get up and help you. But if I find it where I told you it was, you're gonna be in trouble. Like there's gonna be a consequence for this because I know you just want me to do it for you. And he smiles back, he's like, come on. Like he's so confident, you know? So I, I get up, I walk into his room, I look in the front pouch and guess what I find? toothpaste in his toothbrush, right? Now, I will tell you, I decided to give him some grace. I didn't extend any consequences in this situation because let's be honest, I could empathize with him. I was the same kid in a lot of situations. I, I, my mom can testify to this, that she's here today, but there were numerous days that I would stand in that closet looking for a particular shirt that I wanted to wear to school that day and I couldn't find it. And so like most children do, I would yell at my mom from the other end of the house, in my closet, mom, can't find my shirt. She would yell from her into the house as she was trying to hurriedly get ready. It's in your closet. No, it's not, Mom. I looked in my closet. Look again, Jeremiah. Put it in there yesterday. Mom, I've looked. It's not in here. And then she would come in. There it is. You know what I mean? Over and over and over again. So I think we all go through those moments where we don't really know what the best approach is to search for something, which leads me to my opening question for you this morning. What kind of searcher are you? Right, let's say the remote goes missing. Are you the sort of person that's going to tear up the cushions and the couches and just go all over the house until you find it? Or are you gonna embrace that mindset that's like, nah, it'll turn up. Somebody else will find it, right? What kind of searcher are you? I think a lot of times our answer to that question is contingent upon the value of the item that we're looking for or maybe the time sensitivity that we have to find that particular item, right? So for example, if I'm looking for my wedding ring, I'm gonna search a lot harder than I would be if I was looking for the remote because it's more valuable to me, right? It's not something I want to lose or have go missing. I don't just shrug my shoulders and go, well, I'll find it later. You think about the time sensitivity to a particular issue. If I lose my keys and I don't have anywhere to be, I might go, huh? wonder where I put those and just kind of casually look for them as I go about the rest of my morning. But if I'm late for a meeting, right, and I can't find my keys, it's all hands on deck. I'm going all over the place. I'm calling everybody else in the house. We got to find these keys, right? So the more valuable the item, the more time sensitive the situation, the more urgency and diligence with which we will search, correct? So let me ask you a follow-up question. When it comes to the hearts and souls of men and women, kind of searcher are you, right? When we know scripture would say this is of the utmost value and should be handled with the utmost urgency, how do we seek and search for the hearts and souls of others? See, more often than not, I feel that my confession and what I often can see observed in the church and in our culture is that a lot of times we sit back and we go, ah, maybe later. Maybe somebody else will find it. When in reality, what we need to do is to move with that sense of urgency because we see the value that every heart and soul 
carries. And that's exactly what this passage is going to prompt us and encourage us and instruct us to do. And yet I know that the only way it's really possible is not just by looking at a passage and a couple of verses on a page, but to truly follow the Spirit's leading. And so before we move any further, that's what we're gonna ask for, for the Spirit to guide us to know what it means to search for the hearts and souls of others. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that your Spirit would truly guide us in this moment. Father, that you would give us the eyes to see the hearts and souls of others as you see them. Father, that we would move with that same urgency and commitment that we see demonstrated in our Lord and our King. Father, that we would go into this world, into this community, into our workplaces, our schools, our neighborhoods, everywhere that you send us, Father, with that sort of understanding and that sort of commitment to seek and to save so that we could bring you the glory that you so richly deserve. And so, Father, as we consider that this morning, we pray first that you would immerse us in your spirit and that as we open your word, Father, that it would speak to us in profound ways, that it would once again be living and active as we grow to better pursue you and to serve you. We love you, Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. All right, grab your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 10. As is always the case, if you do not have a Bible and you need one, please let us know. We will be happy to give you one uh, so that you can have that with you. We have been walking through Matthew chapter 10 uh, since the beginning of October. We're going to use it through the month of November. And it has been an opportunity for us to, to look at this template to see how Jesus sends out the 12 into their community. And it becomes a template for how we can engage our community and our world as well. When we first began this series and we looked at those first few verses, we saw that this really was about Jesus entrusting his power to his disciples, to his followers, right? He gives them authority. And so we see how they steward that authority. That authority is demonstrated through the casting out of impure spirits, by the healing of diseases, some miraculous things. Now, the authority and the power that we go with is, yes, possible to do those things, but more a proclamation of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the demonstration of God's power and the demonstration of his kingdom. But he entrusts his authority to the church and to us today nonetheless. And so we follow that example. We steward that gift of authority. And then in this section, we see all these very detailed instructions of how we are to steward that authority well and how we're to go out and engage in the community, right? So, so there in that first week, we looked at how Jesus provided a certain level of focus. He said, don't go to every Gentile town, just focus on the lost sheep of Israel. And that was a reminder that we need to kind of focus our efforts, right? We can't do everything. We need to have that sort of intentionality. And at the same time, it was a reminder to trust in God's timing, right? That it wasn't that there was no plan for the Gentiles. It just wasn't yet time for that plan for the Gentiles. So when we go, we trust in God's timing. We go with a certain focus. We also talked about the importance of proclaiming the message that the kingdom of heaven is near, that that's what we're going to proclaim. And so we, we do so with this mindset, being mindful of the fact that freely we've received, so freely we give, right? It's that posture of generosity, which was kind of a transitional verse that allowed us to dive into that next set of instructions that talked about how the disciples weren't supposed to procure or to store anything for their journey, right? Don't take anything with you. Don't go get any more things with you. It was a really fascinating couple of verses that we had a chance to consider a few weeks ago that kind of brought us back into the dependency that we should have on God, his provision, and the dependency on others as well that kind of brings us into that, that need to just love the neighbor well and be loved 
by the neighbor well. And so we talked about the importance of that. So then I asked Nick intentionally to skip ahead and to talk uh, about those later verses that give kind of an opportunity for us to consider what does it mean to be witnesses in front of governors and kings. So we, we jumped ahead last week. So now we're, we're coming back to verse 11. We're gonna finish out 11 through 15 and then next week we'll kind of get back on track picking up where Nick left us off. So if you've got your scriptures, let's follow along in verse 11. It says, whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. All right, so here's what we have. We have a search party. That's what Jesus just initiated. That, that's one of the driving verbs, the, the, the main instructions here in these sets of verses. Go in whatever town, whatever village, search. That's what he's asking them to do. Now the word search literally means to examine thoroughly, right? To closely look for, right? So this is not just, hey, as you pass through towns, casually observe along your way. This is seek these things out. It's with a great uh, thorough examination. And I think that's a very important word for us to consider on the front end of this conversation today because a lot of times when we think about how we as a church are going to try to impact the community around us, we tend to evoke more of a come and see mindset, right? So we build our buildings, we build our programs, we build our websites, and everything is here we are, come and see, right? And that's kind of the approach. When in reality, what Jesus has demonstrated here with the disciples and what you see consistently through the scriptures is, man, you're not waiting for them to find you. You go find them. Search, examine thoroughly. That is what you and I are called to do, right? I've, I've said it before. We ourselves as this church find ourselves in a community where in a two and a half mile radius, most estimates and studies would say there's at least 10,000 people that would knowingly declare they don't believe in God. We must not have a come and see, hope you find us mentality. We go and we seek and find them. That's what Jesus is doing with his followers. He's sending them out to search. Now, the question then becomes, for what? It's interesting how it's described here. Right? He says, go and search for some worthy person. Now, that's an interesting description. Is that we know that that when it comes to making disciples and evangelism, which is really the heart of this whole series, we're talking about people. We're talking about the hearts and souls of others, right? But here, that heart and soul, that, that person is described as worthy. Well, that's interesting, right? Especially when you think about one of the definitions for worthy here is deserving. And so when you consider that, it, it wouldn't be unreasonable for you to maybe walk away with a false impression that Jesus is maybe saying that only a few people are worthy of the gospel, only a few people are deserving to know of this kingdom. That's not at all what is being said here because we know in the full context of scripture, nobody's worthy of the gospel. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one deserves heaven. No one deserves grace. That's what makes it grace, right? So he's not saying, hey, as you go out, find the people that are worthy of this. He's, he's kind of shifting their focus. Let me explain to you what's happening. Another definition for this word, two things for you to consider with this word. Another definition of this word is valuable, right? So in, in my estimation, I think part of what he's trying to 
help the disciples to see is the value that is associated with the heart and the soul. But more importantly, more likely, what's going on with the context here is he's saying the worthy person is the receptive person, right? The worthy heart is the receptive heart. When you read through the rest of these verses, you see that this is a conversation about those who are going to take in the disciples and those that won't, right? And so he's saying the worthy person is the one that invites you in. That's the one that's, that's ready to hear, that's ready to receive you. That's who you're looking for. And I think that's really important. In, in our context today, what, what we would equate that to maybe would be those folks that are inviting you over for dinner, that are reaching out to you. When you do have those moments to have a spiritual conversation in some capacity, they're interested. They don't throw up walls and change the subject. They wanna know more. They're asking questions. We need to be constantly attuned and in tune with those responses because that should be prompting us to go, this person is ready to hear. That's who we're looking for, right? So it's a really interesting structure that Jesus is bringing us into. He's essentially bringing us into this theme that was introduced just a few weeks ago, which is this idea of hospitality, right? If you look at the whole paragraph that we just read, it really kind of creates this contrast and in this kind of, you know, those that will and those that won't. And at one point, you see the word welcome, and it's, and it's offering a description of those that would not welcome you or listen to my words. And the word welcome means extend hospitality, right? So that hospitality is at the core of this message and of this teaching. And so I want to make sure that we understand exactly what that looks like and why that was so important to Jesus's approach here, okay? Because for us, hospitality is being kind, maybe taking somebody a meal, but it was so much more ingrained into the people of God, especially into the Judaic people. Let me explain to you why it was a part of their history from the very beginning, right? Even Abraham was called to leave the country of his own and to move into a land that God was gonna show him. He was nomadic. He was constantly traveling as a foreigner and as a stranger, dependent upon the kindness and the hospitality of others. You see that through the Exodus. God's people lived in the land of Egypt as foreigners and strangers. They wandered in the wilderness and in the desert. This was a part of their whole history. And so naturally, it actually becomes ingrained in the Levitical code and in the Levitical law. You go to Le uh, Leviticus 19, verse 34, it says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And it is, it is embedded into their culture, into their history, into their laws. Man, you you treat the foreigner as a native-born, love them as yourself. That, that was the ethos of hospitality. So it was absolutely prevalent in Jesus' day. It was absolutely being practiced when Jesus was sending out his disciples, and it continued to became, uh, or become a, a continued point of emphasis for the early church, which is why when you get to books like the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, and it says, practice hospitality for some have entertained angels when doing so. I love that verse. It's such a great verse. And a lot of times I've just let it be kind of assigned to mystery, right? Like this idea that anytime you demonstrate kindness or hospitality to a stranger, somebody begging on the street, that who knows, maybe you were entertaining an angel in that moment. But as I was researching this this past week, I found that some scholars would actually take that Hebrews 13 verse about entertaining angels and use it to point back to a popular story of Abram in Genesis 18, 
right? You remember this story? This is the story where the Lord decides to reveal himself to Abraham and to Sarah, telling them that they're gonna have a child. And then Sarah laughs and the Lord is like, why are you laughing? You're gonna name him Isaac because you were laughing. You remember that story? And, and what's interesting is how the Lord chooses to reveal himself. He reveals himself as three visitors, right? And so it's this moment where we actually get to see how Abraham practices hospitality. What does he do, right? It's more than just an exchange of pleasantries. It's more just than a quick visit along the road. He runs to these visitors. He, he bows down at their feet. He washes their feet. He gives them something to drink. And then he has his servant go and slaughter the most choicest of those cattle to feed and prepare and to care for them. It's a, it's a remarkable demonstration of hospitality, right? And so, so it is embedded into their culture, which is why this section also comes with some words of warning, right? For those that don't practice hospitality, right? And, and you can see the contrast that takes place here because clearly to not do this was a terrible thing, right? So, so several things that are mentioned in this passage that is, is kind of a, a response to the lack of re- being received or finding somebody that would uh, be receptive and practice this hospitality. On one hand, he says, shake the dust off your feet. I've always wondered what that means and where that came from. And, and what I came across this past week was that apparently pious Jews back in this time period, if they passed through a Gentile town, right, they would consider it to be pagan and godless. And so as they left that town, they would literally shake the dust off their feet so that they could demonstrate they wanted no association with that town and the pending judgment that was awaiting it because it was godless, right? So that was a common practice. So Jesus is kind of evoking that. At the same time, you see this whole, if you give them your peace to those that receive you, but if they don't, take your peace back. Again, that is not just some sort of uh, exchange or some sort of greeting. This was a, a prayer of blessing, right? And we know that the peace that is being offered here is the peace that can only be found with Christ. And so he's saying, don't, don't offer that if they're not receiving you. If, they, if they're rejecting you, they're rejecting me, so let, let my peace return to you. That's right? a very strong statement. And, and to really bring it home with the seriousness, Jesus then makes a comparison to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now think about this, okay? Sodom and Gomorrah, if you were reading Genesis 18 about Abram and those three visitors, you just turn another page or two, you're gonna read about Sodom and Gomorrah. And there are a lot of things wrong with Sodom and Gomorrah. It is filled with wickedness. But one of the things we see in that story is that when that visitor comes through Sodom and Gomorrah, who is in fact an angel, man, they do the opposite of hospitality. They're they're looking to attack and to assault this person that's in their midst. It's the the opposite of what God desires for us in terms of loving others and loving the neighbor. And so those cities are destroyed. And so Jesus makes that same comparison. The absence of that sort of hospitality results in definitive judgment. Now, how do we interpret that? How do we understand that then today? Part of what we see then is that the disciples were emissaries of Christ. And so to receive a disciple is essentially the same as receiving Jesus, right? To receive his kingdom, to receive his promises. And so the unworthy heart is the one that rejects Jesus. And and the Bible's very clear. Apart from Jesus, There is no grace, there is no mercy. It's a tough teaching, but it's clear here, right? And so what we need to understand when we think about what Jesus is asking them to do is this whole culture of hospitality, that when you invited someone in, 
right? You were, you were protecting them. You were saying, you can stay here. I'm gonna keep you safe. I'm gonna keep you fed. I'm gonna care for you. I'm gonna meet your needs. It was a tremendously important gesture. And so with, by Jesus sending them out in this way, he's reminding them what it means to be guests as well as what it means to be hosts. Because throughout the course of their ministry, they are going to need to be received by others as much as they're also going to receive those that come to them. This, this experience of hospitality is a reciprocal relationship, right? It's driving people into the heart of relationship, and that's what makes it so valuable. And so several implications for you and me this morning. Okay, here's the first one that I would point out. When you see Jesus sending them out in such a way, part of what he is doing is that when they go out into these villages, at best, at most, they would see others as equals, right? But, but probably even more accurately, they would go with such humility that they would see others as a life source, like they're fully dependent upon the hospitality and generosity of others. The reason that's significant is because the disciples are not being sent out with the posture of superiority. That's huge, right? I've given you this power, I've given you this authority, but you're gonna have to practice it in tremendous humility because I'm stripping you of everything else. Too often when we try to go out into the community or we go into the lives of others, we often fall into the mistake of, of carrying this posture of superiority. Call it arrogance, call it judgment, whatever you wanna call it, but a lot of times that's the way we carry ourselves. But what Jesus has done is created a structure where that's all but impossible because you're so dependent upon others. And so while we don't have the exact literal practice today, it's a great reminder that we absolutely go into the community with tremendous humility, seeing others as equals, not in a, in a position of superiority or judgment. All right, so that's number one. Number two, another lesson from this is that you're gonna meet opposition. Right, it's the first time in Matthew's gospel that it's very clear, hey, people are not gonna wanna receive you. People are not gonna wanna invite you in. Right, and this becomes the dominant tone for the rest of the gospel, and as we know, Jesus' ministry. And so this is a great reminder to you and me in terms of what it is that we are called to do. Right? We're called to search. Right? Not everybody's gonna wanna hear it, and so you gotta keep searching for that receptive heart. Expect rejection, right? And uh, Kevin and April did a great job for all of us to keep in mind how we handle that. Right? We do so with love and with grace, but we have to understand not every heart is ready to hear and to receive. And so we may have a thousand conversations and a thousand times see doors closed, but then we find that one heart that's open, that's ready, and man, that's where we pour into. But expect the opposition, right? And be grateful. Be grateful for whoever the Lord leads you to. A lot of times in this structure of hospitality, it was common, especially in the Greco-Roman culture for people to kind of pick and choose who they hoped would receive them, right? Because they've got a better house, they live in a better part of town, whatever it is, you know, just those, those desires of comfort. And so Jesus was trying to say, don't try to better your position by choosing who's going to be this hospitable person, right? Just be grateful for whoever extends this to you. I think a lot of times too, even though we need focus, a lot of times we, we cut off and limit who it is that God might be leading, leading us to because of our own personal preferences and biases. Well, I don't wanna to go to that part of town. I don't wanna to talk to those friends at school. I'm not gonna to talk to those neighbors there, but I'll, I'll find people that I feel more comfortable with. Man, go to the village. Whoever's receptive to you, 
and be grateful. And, and so you see this, this powerful structure of hospitality that, that creates these sorts of mindsets and this posture. But here's what I love about this text is it's not just search. We get the second explicit command here. What are you supposed to do when you find this worthy person? Stay. Man, I love that. Stay means to abide, <laughs> right? It means to keep on. It means to walk alongside with some sort of expectation to a future result, right? This is, this is critical. What I love is what isn't said in this text, right? Jesus did not say go into every town and village and knock on as many doors as possible. Here's your sales pitch. Get a decision and move on, right? Man, he said, when you find that heart, stay. Abide with them. That's huge. And I, I wanna bring that into our context today because again, when we start talking about evangelism and discipleship, it's not uncommon for us to encounter those sorts of strategies that are gonna have us just blitz an area, Right, go as quickly as possible, as broad as possible, because it's a numbers game, and if you want to get decisions, you're going to have to talk to more people in order to get so many decisions, yada, 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 and then move on. Now listen, I'll be very clear. I do believe that it's sometimes those approaches have a role, okay? And I do believe that decisions and conversions can happen instantaneously and in large crowds. My point is, is that that approach is great at getting decisions. It's not great at making disciples. We are called to make disciples. And so when you find that receptive heart, the next command is stay, abide, walk with them. I love that. I think that's so incredibly important, right? And, and so think about this. Essentially what Jesus knows and what he's doing is he's saying discipleship is and always has been relational, it is incredibly relational. You have to build some sort of relationship with the people that you're going to be received by in order for this kingdom to really take root in their heart. It has to be relational if you're going to make a disciple. And we know that this is true for us today. Relationships take time. They're not instantaneous. It requires you to stay. In fact, a professor at the University of Kansas recently did some research, and it was published in one of the, uh, these social science journals about the number of hours it takes to build relationships. And, and here's kind of the range that he found, and I'm, I'm summarizing this and paraphrasing it, but he essentially came away with this idea that it takes about 50 hours for you to cultivate a casual friendship. Okay, 50 hours with somebody for you to be like, okay, we're, we're kind of friends, right? If you wanna go to the next level to really consider them just legitimate friends, it takes about 90 hours of relational investment. And then if you really want to become close friends, it takes about 200 hours. Okay, so if you were to break that down in maybe common experiences a day, let's say, you know, a lot of times we build relationships by taking people to lunch or coffee, right? That usually takes about an hour. So if you wanted to create a casual friendship, if that's the only time that you saw that person, you would need to take somebody out to lunch once a week for almost an entire year to create a casual friendship. Right? If you want to make it a little bit more legitimate, you either need to do that for two years or add another lunch within your week. Take them out to lunch twice a week for an entire year. If you want to become close friends, right, you need to do it four years or four days a week. You see what I'm saying? It's, it's not rocket science. It takes more time. 
to create closer bonds and closer relationships. So what did Jesus do? Man, he expedited that process almost exponentially. By making them dependent, being brought into somebody's home where they would have to be protected, provided, and cared for. We don't know how long they were in these villages, but let's say they stayed for a week. There's your 200 hours-ish, right? All, think about how quickly that relationship is fostered because that person brings you in and you're actually dwelling with them, right? It, it creates this significant relationship. He knows that that's what's required, so he puts them in a structure where it can be expedited and it can truly flourish and be fueled. What we know repeatedly in the scripture is discipleship takes time. We see this model with Jesus himself and with Paul and his ministry. Right, here's Jesus, he's speaking to masses, he's casting out demons and doing all these incredible things, much like I'm sure the disciples did in these villages and towns. No doubt, large crowds gathered around and many decisions were probably made. Who did Jesus pour into? 12. What did he do, man? He stayed with them. He dwelled with them. He walked with them. How many times did they say, but I don't understand this, and why couldn't we do this? And he just kept on teaching. For how long? Most scholars would estimate anywhere between a year to three years. Right, think about Paul. Right, Paul goes to Ephesus. We just finished studying this incredible letter that he sends to Ephesus. Now, how did he know those people? How did he know what they were facing? If you go back and read Acts chapter 19, what do you see with his journey into Ephesus? Man, when he shows up in Ephesus, he preaches in the synagogue, not once, not real quick, in and out. Man, he preaches in the synagogue for three months. And then you know what he does? He's like, all right, I'm done in the synagogue, but I'm gonna hang out here for another two years. Keeping talking with people, dwelling with people, abiding with people. That's what discipleship looks like. That's what we're being asked to do. Go and stay. So we must not lose that in our thinking, in our approach. Man, when we pick out a part of a community, we're not gonna just go and say, hey, we're just gonna provide VBS here this one year, man. If we feel like they are receptive, we're gonna pour into them. We're gonna start bringing groceries. We're gonna start helping the school. We're gonna start opening up other opportunities to just continue to pour into these folks and meet their needs. And if we do that as a church, we need to do that as individuals. When God brings those people into your life, what would it look like to pour into those folks and dwell with them and abide with them, right? It, I've said it before. It's about doing more with few rather than trying to do less and less with more people, right? That's the approach. That's the strategy. Now, why is this so critical? Why is this so important? Why is this Jesus's mechanism and method? Well, I think one of the reasons, if maybe not the central reason, is because he knows exactly how we were designed. He knows how we were created. Right? You go back to the early pages of creation. What's the first thing that we discover is not good for the human heart? To be alone. You and I are created for relationship. Relationship with God and relationship with others. And so if this kingdom is going to take root, if it's going to flourish, it has to be in the arena of intimacy, of relationship, right? Part of what we're combating is not just the lost soul, but the lonely heart that needs to know that it's loved and that it belongs. And that's an incredibly important word for us today because we live in the midst of a loneliness epidemic. I was reading 
This article was written in Psychology Today back from 2019, so pre-pandemic, pre-social distancing, pre-shut down the economy. And according to that article, research would indicate that around 47% of the population would describe themselves as lonely, which is more than double what it was a decade before. 47%. And we know that loneliness has tremendous um, impact on your overall mental and emotional and physical health. Right? It, the, the, a lot of studies will say it's the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Right? It increases obesity, uh, blood pressure, suicide, depression. Right? It, it literally is not good for you. Right? And that was pre-pandemic. Most studies have indicated that probably in the first three months of the pandemic, loneliness increased by 20 to 30% and emotional distress tripled. If there was ever a time for the church to understand the importance of staying and abiding with others, it's now. Because I assure you, souls are not just lost, hearts are lonely. And that's exactly what Jesus is sending us to declare and proclaim. This is what I love about this, this message, the message of the kingdom. Think about the essence of the promise of the gospel. It's in Jesus himself. It's in that name, Emmanuel. What is the message and the hope that the kingdom is providing? God is with you. You're not alone. This relationship with your creator is restored. That's what the heart is longing to hear. And so Jesus sends his disciples out and essentially, if we were going to, to summarize the message, it's listen, God is with you, and so am I. And you create this beautiful moment where the heart is loved by God and loved by others. That's what we're sent to do. That's the message we're sent to proclaim. And so let me, let me close with a couple of takeaways for us, okay? I would anticipate a couple of things that the Lord might be prompting you to consider this morning. For some of you, maybe what you're really needing to wrestle with is you need to do some searching. A couple weeks ago, as we started this series, I asked you to picture in your mind who it is in your life that's far from God, that lost soul, that lonely heart, right? And, and I know there have been seasons in my life where I've been asked that question or I've asked myself that question, and honestly, it was hard to think of someone. And so maybe that was you. Maybe as I ask that question, or if you think about it today, who in your life is far from God that God might be leading you to, you may not have anybody to think on. And if that's you, search. <laughs> search. Don't wait for them to find you. Don't sit back and go, you know what, maybe later, maybe someone else will find them. Man, search with the value that they deserve and the urgency that Christ commands. What does that look like? Man, that could be bake some cookies and take them to your neighbors, right? Invite that colleague out for lunch. Visit with somebody in your neighborhood, whatever it may look like, people at your school, folks in your dorm room, whatever it looks like, put, put those efforts out there and look for the receptive heart. And when you find that person that is receptive, stay. And maybe that's the second thing that some of us need to consider this morning. Maybe we have that person or people in mind that God has brought into our lives that he's saying, this is who I want you to pour into. And maybe we've just casually been checking in on them and when really we need to abide. 
We need to stay with them. We need to walk through life with them. What would it look like for you to think of that, those one to two people, if you truly just poured into your relationship with them for the next year? What would happen? What could God do? Maybe he's calling you to stay, consistently reminding those folks that God is with them and so are you. But I think for all of us, whether we're being prompted to search or to stay, I think what all of us need to take comfort in this morning is not just what we are to do for the community and the people around us, but what God has done for us. Because we know, undoubtedly, when we look at this text, that Christ was sent to seek and to save the lost. He stopped at nothing to search for you and for me and every broken heart. He took on flesh and dwelled among us so that we could abide with him. I think all of us need to take a moment this morning and never forget and remember that there was a moment and maybe you're still in that moment, but there was a moment where your soul was the one that was lost and your heart was the one that was lonely. And somebody or someone or something happened that opened your eyes to the promise that God was with you and you felt it burning within your soul, Jesus standing there knocking on the doors of your heart saying, let me come in and dwell with you and you received him and everything changed. You have seen God move mountains in your life and we can know definitively he's going to do it again. And so that's why he's sending us out because his promise is sure his faithfulness remains. And so let us move out, church, into all these places that where he is sending us. Let us search, let us stay, let us declare the promise that our God is with us and so are we with those who need to know that they're not alone because we know our God has moved and he will continue to move in our midst. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for leaving the comforts of heaven that you may dwell among us. Father, thank you for changing us and finding us worthy of receiving the hope of this gospel. And so, Father, may we treasure that gift this morning and may it inspire us and fuel us to go into all the places that you would send us. Help us to think of those, those people. Let us picture names and faces this morning where you would be sending us. And help us know what it means to go and declare the promises that you are with them and the testimony that we can share that gives that assurance because you're with us. Father, as we're about to sing, we know time and time again, as we have experienced personally, we've seen you move, Father. We've seen you move mountains. So this is not too little for us to consider what you can do in this community, what you can do in our lives, the walls that can break down in the hearts of others and our family members and our friends and our neighbors. And so let us declare your faithfulness 
and that we will truly see you continue to move. We'll see you do it again and again and again to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.